Content advisory. This talk contains sexual references and references to self-harm. Cradian. Don't be fearful of your emotions. A talk by James Parker at the Immaculata Mission School 2017, held at the Launceston Church Grammar School in Tasmania. This place makes me just crack up. I don't know where you're finding these songs from. You're praying Our Lady and do of knots. That's exactly why I'm praying to her. Lots of different things. I've never asked anybody this question in my life. I feel a bit vulnerable asking it. Do you think I could be a saint? Because yeah. yeah. I doubt it, you know. But I'm stood here and I'm with you lot and I, and I just see saints. I see, honestly, I... I really mean it. I, I'm, 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 I'm welling up all the time in the midst of being with you. I'm laughing my head off, but I'm welling up like crazy because honestly, I really feel I'm in the company of saints. You know, I know God called me to be in Australia. And he, that thing about go to the ends of the earth, rest of it. Well, you know, I'd never heard of Tasmania. <laughs> you laugh, but I'm talking, I'm talking about the way this word has been affecting my soul since before some of you were conceived. And I'm here now with you, and I'm just thinking, and I feel the Lord. I mean, I know God's, I know God's hand is on Australia. This is the great Southland of the Holy Spirit. And he's doing a work here. And I was talking to Mark about this last night. I said, Mark, something's going on. He said, I know. I said, but Mark, you know, he said, I said, you know me. I said, I've been in about 56 countries. And he said, he's the same. He's been everywhere. I said, but there's something happening here in Australia. And it's happening with the young people. And it's happening in the Catholic Church. Now, if you think I can be a saint, and I'm saying, well, I don't think I can be, I'm actually beginning to believe that maybe I can. And I'm saying that to you because I'm saying, you've got to reflect what I'm saying to you too. None of this, oh, well, special people in black and white on the wall. <laughs> in fact, the black and white's not bad. It says your black's got to be black and your white's got to be white. Either you are choosing life or you are choosing death. He doesn't need you, but you've no idea how much he wants you. He wants you so badly. Let me tell you, you're sleeping. He's, he's looking for you while you're asleep, 24-7. There's a lover that is chasing you desperately. Every one of you. That's why the world wants to have its grip on you. Let go of that grip. Oh. <sighs> Keep asking me if I'm breathing, will you, please? Oh, I'm serious. I, I, I am, I really am, I'm really, I really am breathing. And I'm really, honestly, I'm really serious. God is at work here. I'm a little bit scared by it. I don't get scared by anything, really. I get scared by him, his love. But I'm just, his, there's something, something's happening here today, guys. Please don't miss it. I want to talk about a couple of things, and I, I was going to talk about them earlier, and, and, I'm, and I'm pleased I haven't. And one is about emotions, okay? Heart speaks unto heart, 
That was the theme of when Benedict XVI came and made a visit to England, to the UK, uh, back in 2011. And what he did is, it's the first time the beatification has not taken place at the Vatican. Canonizations tend to take place in different places, etc. And beatifications uh, always take place at the Vatican. And this time, this beatification didn't. It was blessed John Henry Newman. And the reason why Benedict said he didn't want to do that, he said, because there was something very particular in the message of John Henry Newman, who had been um, a, a convert from Anglicanism to Catholicism. Uh, but the theme, the motto was heart speaks unto heart. God doesn't want facts from you. He's, he is interested in facts. He wants your hearts. And if we're not in touch with our heart, and not in touch with the whole of our heart, we can't know his hearts. We talked earlier about shame and guilt. Apart from doing the work with sex, sex addicts, which was nothing about sex or even addiction, it was actually about how they dealt with their hearts and relationship. All addiction is that. You're noticing many of us, actually, we are addicted to our phones. And what's happening, we're realizing this week, is I'm hungry for a relationship. I spend my life on my phone, but really deep down, I just want me to look at me and talk to me and be with me and, and love me and let me love them back as well. We have shame and guilt, but I, I spent another, another thing I did in, in London, I spent several years running a, a, a group for men. And the deal was, get to the door, take off your mask, come in and get real. And every one of those meetings, we began by having what we called a check-in session. We checked in with each other. And we mentioned our name, because we all have a name, and then we spoke about how we felt. And we deliberately used words. <laughs> you say to a guy, how do you feel? He go, okay. <laughs> what? Yeah. Mate? Sorry, yeah. Anyway, all right. But actually, we learned to turn around and we learned to say, okay, this is what I'm feeling. And we'd say where we were feeling in the body. I'm simply might say, well, I feel a bit nervous, or I feel a bit stressed, or I feel whatever. And we said, break it down, break it down to what do you feel? And the feelings really come under these headings. They come to joy or gladness, sadness, anger or madness. You're looking at gladness, sadness, madness. The last one is fear. We also added shame and guilt onto that because some people were feeling that who they were was wrong. They needed to be tenderly looked after that night by each other of the brothers. Another said, I feel like I've done wrong. And we knew that what happened is they need to be brought to a place before the cross of repentance, what they've done or not done, and to walk beyond that. But this is what would happen when we would check in. The thing was this, you had to say how you felt, and you had to say where you felt it in your body. That's even more scary for guys, let me tell you ladies. <laughs> So a guy would say, oh, well, you know, it's been a really good week. Yeah, I've, I've got a bit of promotion at work. I've got the project finished, you know, blah, blah, blah. See, I feel some real joy. And we wait for him to finish and he sit there and he go, and I feel, um, I feel some sadness. It's, it's here inside me. sadness rise up and often he'd just sit and he'd cry and he'd weep we'd say we're here we're with you in your sadness it might sound a bit scary but I tell you what we were doing we were saying we give you permission brothers as we would to you two sisters for your heart to feel everything your heart feels feelings are not right and they are not wrong they're feelings 
They just tell us where we are here and now today. What we would do is we'd have the check-in, we'd work out where we were, there was some crying, somebody still bouncing off the walls because their joy is so palpable, whatever it might be. All this thing is somebody still going, because so angry. <laughs> and somebody else is kind of cowering in the corner because they're, they're just feeling their fear. Then we'd worship and the roof used to lift off because we were taking our hearts into worship and not just our voices and our thoughts and our attitudes. We're taking where we were into worship. Now, why do I mention to you about emotions today? Because what happens is our world has become deeply, deeply frightened of our emotions. Those cycles of development we went through before were about learning that our joy and our sadness and our fear and our anger is perfectly, perfectly accepted before God. And that when we understand those feelings, we can begin to determine where we feel shame and where we feel guilt. And therefore, we can come openly and honestly with our hearts wide open before this cross. We can start being real with him. We can start giving to Jesus what he's paid for already. Now, let me tell you, there is both redeemed and unredeemed feelings. Now, I say feelings aren't right or wrong. What I mean is this. You can have a joy that's really quite plastic. I'm going to have joy in the Lord. I'm going to choose joy in the Lord. Don't get me wrong. We can choose joy. We can choose it. But sometimes we're choosing joy when really deep down, we just want to break up and cry our eyes out and scream. Many people feel angry for lots of different reasons. And they think that anger is a bad thing. Let me tell you the first person or one person who ex experiences profound anger. Our Father in heaven. And his anger is righteous anger. He gets angry when your inheritance is stolen from you, particularly when his son has spent everything, his blood and everything, to buy you back to his kingdom. He gets really angry. Really angry. And some of us, I include myself in this, have been deeply hurt by others. Or others haven't loved us where they should have loved us. And we feel anger about that. And some of us might think it's a bad thing to think or bad thing to feel. No, it's not. That's why my head banging the tabernacle and going, you beep, well, better do some in my life. Then I think what happened is I began to get in touch with the journey that I needed to walk with God. And he allowed me to walk through some fires and the sin and all the rest of it. I'm not saying that he pushed me there or, you know, it was my choice to do that. Did I have to go through that? I don't think I did, but I did. But all I know is this, when I got deeply in touch with my own heart and my own feelings, I was able to begin to walk this journey of salvation into the arms of my lover in a whole different way. Let's go over the first slide. Our acceptance of ourself is incredibly important. I mentioned to you last night that it came to the period of Lent, that 40 days when sometimes we give something up. And I said, Lord, what do you want me to give up? And really what he was saying to me is give up your self-hatred, James, and give up your self-rejection and take on board your self-acceptance. So let's take on what I truly believe about you. <laughs> I remember saying to my mum, and my mum's a nice Anglican lady, and she said, then what are you going to give up for Lent, James, in her fine British accent? I said, I'm going to fall in love with myself, mother, as, my, as, as I think God has asked me to. She goes, ugh. <laughs> You Catholics, it's all about you, isn't it? Like this kind of thing. <laughs> now, what she didn't realise, and uh, we have a good laugh about this now, what she didn't realise is actually the very thing God is asking of all of us is if we don't accept who we are, and particularly our, our image of who we are in him, 
We can't love ourselves. And if we can't love ourselves, our hearts aren't in a place to love God and therefore to love our neighbour as we love ourselves. That's why a lot of this might seem very psychological. You're thinking, just break open the word. In some ways, this is the truth of all the very essence of what God's word is about. It's about coming back to that true design with the true desire that we have to walk in his ways and to be loved by him. I mentioned earlier on about that young child, touch, gaze, and words are really important. The gaze of each other's eyes to each other is integral. You're feeling my eyes looking at you now. I know you really are. And some of you have been feeling it all the time I've been here. I'm a bit of a look into people's soul kind of guy. And I love it because I, you know what? I just, I love your souls. And I'm so used to the Father looking deeply, not just of you, Father, the Father looking deep into my soul and loving me as his son and loving each other in that way. You know, I had one guy come to me at one point and he called me and he was in my, my same-sex uh, um, attracted guys group in London. He said, oh, I've got to get up with some guy and get up with him and blah, 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 and I've arranged to meet him, etc." I said, okay, where, where's he live? Oh, he lives in so-and-so, one other side of London. I said, okay. I said, well, look, can I just meet with you beforehand? Let's just have five minutes together before you go and meet him. He said, well, aren't you going to tell me not to meet him? I said, no, I'm not going to tell you not to meet him. You've got your freedom of choice. I said, just come and meet me five minutes beforehand. And we met at a place called Piccadilly Circus. You may know it. And uh, in Piccadilly Circus at that time, there was a Hungry Jacks. So we went into, and I bought him a Coke in Hungry Jacks. And we went and sat upstairs and he said, uh, what are you going to say to me? What are you going to say to me? I said, I've got no words for you at all. I want you just to take my hand and I want you just to look at me. And he took my hand and he raised his head and looked at me. We said nothing for five minutes, but looked into each other's eyes. And in the silence there, I spoke into his soul. In my, from the quiet of my heart, I just said, I love you and you're my brother and I believe in you and I believe all these things. And any word that came to my mind, I, just, I looked into his eyes as we held each other's gaze for these five minutes with each other's hand. And we looked like a couple of gay lovers. I know we did, but anyway. <laughs> Who cares? But we sat there in, in Hungry Jacks looking at each other like this. And then when the five minutes was up, I said... Um, you need to go and meet this guy now, don't you? He said, I don't want to. I said, why not? He said, I just feel full. I said, full of what? I knew what he was talking about. I'm just trying to get the words out of him. He said, I just don't feel the need to. I said, no, you don't. He said, what just happened? I said, you wanted to meet the soul of another and to deeply, deeply connect, particularly with another man. That's what you've just done. You've not got to go off and give your body to somebody else in some illicit way that's going to make you feel cheap and dirty. I said, actually, what's happened? Your soul, forgive me the phrase, your soul's been orgasming for the last five minutes. That's what's been going on. You've been tasting gently and slowly the ecstasy that your heart's been looking for. That's why adoration's so important, that mouth to mouth, him looking at us. You think you're looking at him, don't you? Sorry, he's looking at you. <laughs> He doesn't need you, but God, he wants you. Attention. Affirmation. Jesus needed affirmation. Two key events that took place in his life. I think you know them. One is the River Jordan. He goes down to the Jordan. The Jordan is the deepest part, apparently, of inland water in the whole world. The symbolism of that is the Son of God descends and basically begins to touch the earth with his presence. All of it. The water at the Cana of Galilee, when he says, this isn't my time yet, notice it's not Jesus' disciples invited, oh, and Mary as well. It says, the mother of Jesus was invited. Oh, and so was Jesus and his disciples. 
Okay, but the water bit is this. Jesus turns the water into the wine because he's basically foretelling the fact the wine will become the blood. And he's kind of mirroring what Moses did. What, what's Moses' first miracle? He went out into the water. The wood of the stick, remember, which represents the cross, was placed in the water, and the water turned to blood. All this symbolism, the deep symbolism that's there, Jesus needed affirming. He went up Mount um, uh, Horeb, sorry, let's say this. He went down to the water. Only then could he deal with the temptation of Satan saying, who do you think you are? You know, who do you think you are? Spice Girls, you know, anyway. Um, <laughs> my mind's mad. We say, who do you think you are? But he was able to turn around honestly and say, you know, man can't live by bread alone, but in every word that comes from the Father. He's living out the word of the Father. I'm his beloved son. Back off, Satan. Start telling the once upon a time story. Okay? The second time Jesus goes up the mountain, Mount Tabor, I think it is, isn't it? Yes. He goes to Mount Tabor, and there he hears the Father's voice again. He's transformed in all of his glory. And again, he needs to hear the voice of his father because he has to make a descent. Not, last time he descended into the water, this time he ascends up the mountain to then descend towards Calvary. He needs to know who he is as he's walking towards this journey of the cross. We need to be affirmed. And God's word is affirming us and wanting you to know that you are salt and that you are light and that you are saints. Already in his sight, you are created for sainthood. If you're going to spend eternity with him, you're going to be in the fullness of all that is sanctity, holy. If you go through purgatory, your calling is still to be saint. That's it. That's why today I'm having to choose. I'm called to be a saint and these people believe it for me. I've got to live that out. So have you. Affirmation of one another, very important. The third thing is this, is affection. We live in a world, and particularly because, again, the child sex abuse problem, it's like everybody's like, ooh, afraid to touch and afraid all the rest of it. There's been a lot, and there is a lot of very, very inappropriate touch that's going on. I don't deny it. But our kids today in particular are in, going to be in crisis if nobody can go anywhere near them and not touch them whatsoever. Because then their touch needs will grow so great, they will go and be touched by anybody once they can make their own decision. I say to many parents, touch your kids and a lot. Hug them and rub-a-dub-dub them, do whatever you've got to do with them till they know the goodness and the beauty of their own bodies. And I believe, too, the Lord wants to, he does want us to know his touch upon us. I can tell you, and I know this is freaky, but there's times I've been stood at the checkout in the supermarket and I have a sense of his hand just upon my shoulder whispering into my ear saying, I love you, James. And I'm almost wanting to burst into tears or laugh. Or I just feel this tingle through me. They're saying... Are these your items, sir? Are these your items? And I'm like, whoa, I'm in ecstasy with God here. Now that sounds weird. I know. But I'm, what I'm saying to you is this, is I've come to a place that I could never understand, that God would want to touch me. But I also get that touch sometimes from other people as well. You know, there's times I need to be held. I wish every parish in the country could have a holding room and an anger room. I'm serious. Because a lot of us need a room we can go into and just go, ah, smack the place to bits and go, oh, that feels better. I was really angry about that. I'm not going to take it out of my work colleagues. I'm not going to take it out of my family or my loved ones. And I'm not going to take it out of myself either. I'm going to express it because it's how I feel. I'm going to in the holding room now and just get held. Oh, thank goodness I'm wanted and I'm connected with the rest of humanity. I share these words with you very, very importantly because I've noticed this in the work I've done with people in very, very broken situations and less broken situations, but we've all got our broken situations. 
These things are critical to our lives. When we have those three A's in our lives from people we feel safe with, let me repeat that, from people we feel safe with, not just because somebody says they're safe, you feel safe with somebody, it's okay to get attention, to get affection, and to get affirmation. And yes, guys, we need it too. We really do. There's a constant battle that's having a go at us, and it's made up of three strands of sin. It could be more than three strands. It's like, but it's, but the three, there's three basic strands, I'd say, called original, ancestral, and social sin. Where are the two lovely ladies with their hair braided? You've got, you've, you've half been, well, you two both got it there. Then there's somebody else with, with another braid as well. Now, if you don't mind me, I'm just going to um, just point to your hair. Try cut, putting a pair of scissors through that and cut it off is going to be quite hard work, isn't it? Yeah? It really is. That's it. Now, take this young lady's hair here to try and put some scissors through there and cut it off. It's not difficult at all. But you gather those strands together and you twist them around each other and there's a strength that happens. And this is what's happening in our lives with sin. Remember sin? Last night we said it's hamartia. We're missing the mark. We're not living in the fullness of what God wants for us. It's not that we're bad or evil or anything like that. It's just that we're missing the mark. We're in a fallen world that's trying to have its grip on us. And it's saying, lose your grip on us. And it's having its grip on us. And, you know, and we really feel like Spice Girls then, don't we? You know what I mean? <laughs> anyway. But the message for us in the midst of our sin is to repent and to believe. There we've got the strands. Even the strands themselves, each one of those three strands that made those beautiful braids there are made of lots of different hairs, lots of different strands themselves. And this is what happens in our sin. And why we have to repent, we have to recognize, we, repent means in a sense we put ourselves again back into the place we should be. We admit where we are, we put ourselves back into the place of saying I've got to be honest about where I am. And then we believe and have faith in Christ. As I said, there's at least kind of three ropes in our sins, three types of sin. And every one of them contains several strands and I reckon those several strands are like the seven steps downwards that we spoke of last night. We'll look at those very quickly again. But every single strand, every bit of sin has power. I'm saying this to you because it's like this. My life that I shared with you last night when I came to Christ was as though I'd been pushed through the windscreen of a car and my body was full of thousands of bits of glass. Now, I could take myself to the hospital in that situation, or they could take me to the hospital in that situation and say, take out all the glass quickly. <laughs> and if it's not taken out, I say, well, this doesn't work. I'm going somewhere else. Thank you. Or I sit there and I allow each little piece of glass to be taken out one by one by one. And you may not see some change for some time, but let me tell you, there'll come a point whereby you'll think, I'm starting to feel better. <laughs> Do you get the point? The same is true with our sin. We are layered and stranded with all these sins. Much of this we've picked up through the cycles of development that we've been through. I would call these three, the three main strands that affect us, original sin, ancestral sin, and really cultural sin, or personal, generational, and social sin. Let me break this open a little bit more for you. We said last night that those seven strands are there. By the time you got down to strand number seven, literally you're almost living in darkness. You're living in the grip of the world that we sang about just a short while ago. And we're seeking to undo the, the grip, that grip from all the different areas of our lives. We mentioned that this begins by us being lied to, to begin with. We looked at this last night, but I want you to look at this again, not just through the eyes of sin generally, but the fact 
We take these seven steps on a personal level. We take these seven steps on a generational level. But we take these steps as a humanity on a cultural and a social level as well. And if we don't face all those levels, then if we take a step of goodness in one area, sometimes we're pulled back by another area, and Satan says, you see, your once upon a time on the cross doesn't work. But let me tell you, Jesus is already victorious. Let me talk a little bit, first of all, about ancestral sin. You know, really, the book of, um, if you read the New Jerusalem Bible, the sort of summary of, of, of Genesis is split into four sections. The first part is the creation of the world and the flood. Then the next three sections are basically Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, and, um, and Joseph. That's the book of Genesis. And since these are our forefathers, the heroes of the Bible, etc., we see a pattern of ancestral sin already beginning to affect them because of the fall from the garden. In Genesis chapter 12, Abram, before his name is changed, he's married to Sarai. They're married and they go towards Egypt. And Pharaoh sees Sarai and says, wow, she's really, really pretty. And he says, oh, well, we are, we're kind of together, but, she, but she's, sort of, she's my sister. He makes out that he's his sister, which I suppose in eternity's eyes she is. And he goes, oh, I want her for myself. And basically Pharaoh takes his wife. Okay? God's not happy. A, then all these issues happen in Egypt. It's a really quick story. And they sit there banished from Egypt. So in other words, Abram has told a lie. Okay? I wonder whether Abram actually told that story to his son Isaac. Why? Isaac makes the same mistake, only not with Pharaoh, but with King, Ab- it's called like Abilamech, I can never pronounce his name, he's a king. And he, just does, he makes exactly the same mistake with his wife, Rebecca, says, oh, she's my sister. And the king takes him for, herself, for himself. So we've gone from, from Abram lying, basically, to Isaac, he's become like a liar. But then what do we see with the next generation down? We see Jacob and Esau, we all know the story of those twins, don't we? Esau came out first, he got the birthright, he was the number one twin born, you know? And we're talking about this as twins. They always put the exact time you were born on your birth certificate when you're a twin in case an inheritance is left to the oldest child. They need to prove who that oldest child is. So I have that, you know, I came out first, my twin sister said it was because I was talking too much in the womb, how dare she? Anyway, there we are. Um, I think she's right. Anyway, um, but Isaac, basically, Jacob steals his brother's birthright, his blessing. So you've gone from lying to liar to deception. Then what happens with Joseph, uh, Jacob's sons? Reuben and the other brothers decide they're going to ch- actually murder their brother. Then they decide, no, we won't, we'll make some money out of him and be the first human traffickers in the Bible. But they're willing to go for murder. Can you see that even in our heroes in the Bible, how those sins are being sown? But Joseph is the one that repents. He's the one that comes before God. And basically, towards the end of Genesis, we see this family being redeemed of its diseased, of its diseased um, story. This is a strand of sin. At some point in your life, in our lives, we have to come before God and look at it. I believe God was asking me to find my birth parents so I could face all the sin from the different aspects of where I came from, which enables me to be able to stand more fully in the inheritance of of what Jesus died for for me. Um, If God doesn't intervene, we have a problem. 
Today, you know, it may not be, the sin may not be as clear, but it could be that dad is more addicted to work than he is to being at home and present to his kids. Or it could be mum's running a business and the whole house runs around mum's business rather than around the fact that we are a family unit and, and we love each other and are committed to each other. Our screens could be the sin that are in, in, most sin in our ancestral family at the moment. Do we want to use our screens and steal our children and our grandchildren in the future from being able to be fully in relationships with each other? I'm just using these examples, you know. Next type of sin is this. It's very small writing. Let me talk you through it quickly. And this is where I believe, and many others with me as well across the world, different um, uh, anthropologists and philosophers I've spoken with, have said this is the pattern that our, our culture has been taking over the years and has deeply, deeply affected us. Again, all these notes I'll send to you. Around, eight, around, around the sort of late 1600s, we had a guy called Descartes, and Descartes said, I think, therefore I am. Now, whose name was I am? He'd be saying, but I think, therefore I am. Around that time in history, there began to be the split between the fact that we lived in what we called um, a, a theonomy, okay? Which means... Everything was about God. If you didn't believe in God, you were kind of put to death. It's like, there's something really weird about you. Today, if you believe in God, there's something really weird about you. Only because you believe in the natural world rather than the subnatural world. Okay? Um, but what happened then is this. I mean, the, in Europe, from where I come and travel extensively, some of the most beautiful buildings are built up to about the year 1800, 1850. These days, we can't build cathedrals like we used to. But we're so enlightened. But we've lost the talent. We've really lost it because we've given up on God. We've become God. Descartes said, I think, therefore I am. It wasn't the enlightenment, guys. It was called the endarkenment. I'm serious. It was the endarkenment. We could learn a lot of things, but we pushed God further and further out of the picture. Prior to that, the only word that ever existed was God's word. That's why everybody lived in a theonomy. Then what happened from about 1815 is the Industrial Revolution kicked in. You may not know this, but you didn't until I tell you, um, but um, one of the reasons why I didn't become a Catholic for so long is I could not trust the Pope. Couldn't trust him. Because somebody once said to me, the Pope had said, the steam engine is a wonderful invention, um, but uh, it'll have negative effects on the world, etc. And I'm thinking, but the steam engine's a wonderful invention. It kicked off so much of technology and the revolution we know today. What a stupid Pope and what a stupid thing to say. And in my heart, that was like a thorn that stopped me from stepping into Catholicism. Until one day, a mate of mine said to me, what did the Pope actually say, James? I said, well, I don't know, this guy told me, you know, he'd said the, the, you know, the steam engine wasn't, you know, was, a, was a bad thing to, to create. He said, well, go and find out. And I went and found out. And I can't remember exactly where I found out, it's in my journal somewhere from years ago. Uh, but the Pope said this, he said, the steam engine is actually a wonderful creation. He said, but I have three concerns. I'm concerned that the world will become more polluted through travel. Tick. He said, my second concern is this. He said, is that the family will begin to break down because people will move around the place and therefore the, the, the essence of family itself, as you know, with parents and, and aunts and uncles, cousins, grandparents, etc. He said, that'll all get broken down too. Tick. The third thing he said is, the world will speed up to a point where people will have no idea what it means to just be and we will lose a Sabbath day, the day that's made holy. <laughs> Tick. I thought the Pope got it all right, and then I thought he was having a go at the steam engine. 
I'm serious, that's one of the main things that pushed me over. That was the straw that broke the camel's back me to say, do you know something? There's something in this thing they call magisterium, the church's teaching. Speed and family. Newspapers came along. Oh, well, newspapers were around, but people began to be able to purchase newspapers. In other words, we began to have information coming from somewhere other than just the word of God. Because of time, I'll go through this quickly. Um, 1900 to 1925, we saw World War I. Some of you heard me talk about this before. Many men, many fathers, remember those cycles of development and the importance of fathers? They went to war, bang, they never came back. We've got almost a global generation that is becoming fatherless for the first time. And the dads that came back were so crippled in their hearts, they had no idea how to share their hearts anymore with their sons to give them the attention they needed and the affection they needed and the affirmation they needed. They were just a mess just about impregnate their wives, so we got another whole stream of men to send to World War II, thank you very much. Goodbye, another generation of dads and men, to some extent. It's actually around 1930 that contraception was given a blessing, sorry to put those two words together, but the Anglican communion turned around and said, we think contraception's okay. How dare any part of Christendom say that contraception's okay? And let me tell you, if, if there's a death of marriage, there's two knives, one stuck in the back and one stuck in the heart. That was the knife in the back, contraception, and that blessing at that time. Basically, it crippled the procreative side of, of, of the um, relationship of man and woman coming together. Then 1925, 1950, we got World War II, and we got women going to war. When I say war, I mean women in military uniform on a large basis, more than ever before, not on the front line, but basically taking on a very, very different role in, in the world as well. Um, and the radio comes in. So before, where you read an opinion of somebody else in a place, remember, that was silent. You might have a gramophone. That's like an iPod, but massive, you know? <laughs> you might have a gramophone. But at this time, suddenly, we've got voices speaking into our lives. And these voices begin to affect how you feel and what you're saying and all the rest of it. It begins, you know, and it begins to affect your emotional world as well. Then we have the sexual revolution, no wonder so-called sexual revolution, several, sexual re revulsion, it should be called, 1950 to 1975, and we have the rise of feminine and women burning their bras saying we don't need men, and we've got men, the Stonewall riots saying we don't need women, thank you very much, we'll go off together. Look at the pattern that's beginning to happen here. And there's not just radio, there's not just a noise in the background where we might sit at the same table together and even look at each other, but there's a noise in the background. Now we're not even looking at each other, we're looking at that screen. It's called the TV. And that will entertain us and that will teach us. <laughs> of course, abortion comes around by the time you hit 75. No fault, divorce. Make it easy just to get out of these difficult, painful relationships and sodomy is decriminalised. And we've got computers, wonderful invention like the steam engine, but also, as any pope would say, there could be negative effects to every beautiful gift that we're given. It can be twisted. So there's no wonder that from the year 2000 onwards, we suddenly live in a world of pansexuality, pornography, a virtual world, basically. My profile picture on my whatever it is, my Facebook page or whatever it is, is so important to me, my Instagram and followers, the rest of it. We have, same, I can spell the word marriage, but I call it same-sex mirage. I've lived both relationships, let me tell you, they are not the same. <laughs> Far from it. And that same-sex marriage, the lie that's called same-sex marriage is basically the, the knife in the heart. It will be the death of marriage when you start twisting something like marriage. 
That's why I'm passionate. I will die for this cause. I have no problem with it. Because it is the bedrock of all of our lives. And of those who, even believe, who think the opposite of me, it's still the bedrock of their lives. Marriage is between a man and a woman is what is healthy for our land and for our world. Reflection of God. And transgenderism, the rise of transgenderism. Why was this not on the, on the political um, agenda 50 years ago or 100 years ago? Think about it. And I'm saying this to you as young people because what you've got to realise is many of you were born late 1900s. Some of you in this room were born in the 2000s, in the noughties, as we call them. And therefore, you've been born into a culture where the mentality tells you something. And it is literally, you've been born into something that's like all those cultural lies. All of them. Only now our smartphones tell us, you know, our YouTube stuff, everything else is telling us what we should have to believe and what not believe. We've got to come back to being truly enlightened and saying, I think, therefore, God must exist. And come back to his word. We've got seven stages there. First of all, there's been a dilution, I believe, of masculinity, particularly. When the, mas the true masculine is, 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 um, is diluted, men treat women like objects and a piece of nothing. Women hit a point where they say, we don't want men, or they say, we, we want to be equal or like men, or we want all the men's jobs, or etc. And what happens is that true calling of the tenderness, the maternal, of being radiance, they want to be majestic like guys, etc. And we end up being in competition with each other rather than complementing each other, as Paul mentioned yesterday in Theology of the Body. Now, we haven't hit rock bottom, by no means. And everywhere you'll find a man and woman married and being serious about their marriage, it will shine in the midst of the chaos in our society today. That's why you're called to good holy marriages, those of you who are called to marriage. You know, and the, and the choices between me, my rights, my feelings and the world's thinkings or between whether I choose God and my responsibilities, his truth and his word. You can't probably see that very well. But basically, remember those seven steps downwards? Society sins and rejects the divine. We didn't repent. So society self-protects itself from its sinfulness. Then it habituates its previous bad decisions deceives itself that it is right, rationalises human and not divine insight, it lies to itself and everyone else, and suddenly our whole society's duty of care is now turned totally upside down. We have original sin, but you're also being affected by, and your cycles of development are being affected by social and cultural sin as well as ancestral and generational sin. When we allow the Lord to slowly take out those bits of glass or to undo each fine hair from each bit of the braid, suddenly we find we have a freedom to shake our head and shake our lives and everything becomes free and not knotted. Hence the Mary undo of knots come and pray for us today in that prayer, which makes me laugh my head off. <laughs> so how do we deal then with our cycles of development? We're just going to ask to come Holy Spirit that he'd restore the years the locusts have eaten. If you don't have the Holy Spirit at work in your life, we're going to pray that a bit later. If you've got no light, then to some extent you are a loser. Sorry, I'm, I'm being really blunt. I mean, don't worry, the Holy Spirit's working in all sorts of ways. He's working in you now, the fact you're breathing. So if somebody's alive, God is at work in them, don't worry. But there's about a deliberate choice of God. That's why we empowered your will this morning. And in, with the Holy Spirit, we're not just victors, we are more than conquerors. You know, I went from being a victim of abuse, to being a survivor of abuse, to becoming a thriver after abuse. 
And now I'm more than a victor. Because that's what Jesus Christ does for us. So my question to you is also this, is what do you need? Because there's some stuff rising for you here, and I'm only with you for a day or so. Was actually you two may need accountability groups where you start to do a bit more deeper work around this. This is why the friendships you make here are friendships for life. And you have the opportunity to have accountability groups away from when you live miles away from each other in a way you can't with others. There are times when I haven't done my daily rosary, and I'll be honest with you, sometimes I think I can't be bothered. Ever felt like that? Not interested. That's when I pick up the phone and say, right, who am I going to call for my book? And I literally I might FaceTime or Skype someone and say, would you sit with me and we do the, we, and we do the um, let's play the rosary together. So we're looking at each other and we're praying together. You know, you can do that today in a way you, we could never do it 15, 20 years ago. Wow, what a time in history. You can have accountability groups, people around you. More teaching on development. I'm putting together loads of YouTube clips this year that I want to go viral, seriously. People begin to understand more of this stuff. Basic life skills, anti-porn projects. You know, a few of you have already spoken to me about your porn addiction, etc. Thank you. You're really noble. I love you. And those of you who haven't spoken to me, I think you're really noble and lovely. Come and tell me about it too, you know? <laughs> hey, I want to say this to you as well. I think it's really important. Do I still struggle with porn? Sometimes, very rarely. But do, am I tempted? Yes, I am. I feel no shame about that because I hate it as much as the cross hates it. And I know that when I stop being able to admit that I hate it or that I struggle with it, then I'm in real trouble. See, it's okay to be honest about where you, where you struggle in your life. It's really okay because God truly, truly loves us. And to get in touch with the sadness you feel or the anger you feel or the fear you feel around all those things as well. As iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. Ladies, I do believe you can sharpen each other, particularly on the journey to holiness as well. And we can sharpen each other as men and women. But we need each other. Do not, please do not leave this place and have a sense there's nobody to walk alongside me once I've gone from this place as well. I want to say this to you as well, no weapon formed against you will prosper, says the Lord in Isaiah 54. We are victors. Your victory is already won for you, all of it. That's why, as I said, I doubt that I'm a saint, but really deep down, I shouldn't be doubting it. My mind says I am. It's my heart that doubts. My heart still needs to be further circumcised in that. Um, So it's important, therefore, I invite you to engage dangerously with Christ and with each other. And the decisions that we have is to choose life or to choose death. A couple of quick points. I might answer a few questions and I'm going to let you get outside and get some air. What I've noticed is this since being in Australia is is, um, um, many people come from a refugee background. Let me say this first of all. Poms have an attitude. They do. Poms have an attitude. And it's sometimes very superior to everybody else's. And it's true. And the white man has that as well. And I mean that, and I mean that, I say that, I try and say that humbly. Because I meet many different poms who say, oh, yeah, you're, oh, you're a pom as well. Oh, yeah. oh, the way the Aussies do, oof, they've got no idea. Oh, if, if only it was like the motherland. I'm like, back off. <laughs> back off. Everybody's doing the best they can. I don't believe people get up in the morning and think, oh, I think I'll make this the worst day imaginable. They might make it for other people because they're hurting inside, but they don't want to make it bad for themselves and everybody else as well. But my point to you is this, is because many people come from a place of, of a different culture of refugees, we've got a real mixture of people here in Australia. It's beautiful, the multi-ethnicity of Australia. I love multi-ethnicity. 
I don't necessarily love multiculturalism. Multiculturalism means you accept everybody's culture just the way it is, so we should just embrace Islam and think it's all fine. I can say that with eight Muslim brothers and sisters. They live under law, I live under grace, I'm free. They're saying, help! I'm like, yeah, come here, come and know Jesus. There's a difference in our cultures. We've got to be honest about that. But what I have noticed is this particularly, is the generational sin of where we come from can deeply, deeply, deeply affect us. You know, I have many black friends, as in African and Caribbean friends, um, who are hurt by slavery desperately, even in the year 2017. I can see how they think small about themselves. I also deal and mentor a number of different Asian guys whom I love. I don't see them as Asian, they're just my brothers for goodness sake, but they come from an Asian culture and there is a huge pressure on many people from the Asian culture to be someone, become a lawyer, become an architect, become a doctor, become whatever. And what's happening is there's a tension in you between what God is asking of you and what your family wants of you. And I want to give you permission to listen to the voice of your eternal father in that. And some of you feel very, you've got a great sadness in you because you're trying to live out your parents' expectations of your future. For some of you, your sadness, when, if you don't deal with your sadness and feel it, as I was teaching those guys and myself, to feel it and feel honestly when we feel sad and to cry together and weep together and say, I just want a really good, you sad, you know? If you don't deal with that sadness, do you know what happens? That sadness gets crushed and it becomes anger. And it becomes unredeemed anger. And if you don't deal with that unredeemed anger, well, if you, if you, if you express it, it'll generally be around other people. Blah, blah, blah. And if it's not another people, you'll turn it in on yourself and you'll start um, self-mutilating, self-harming, self-everything that's not good. And if you really don't deal with that, it becomes depression and you shut off like crazy. God is interested in your sadness and he's interested, really interested, whatever your culture, wherever you're coming from. He's interested in the anger that you might feel towards yourself, towards your mum and dad, towards your home situation, towards your grandparents, towards the expectations of your culture. You are free, you've been set free in Jesus Christ to become you. Hence the reason why I going to my parents and saying, cut the strings, cut the strings, cut the strings, cut the strings. I'm going to be me. I talked to somebody earlier on in here about how the fact is, you know, I'd push my father away by the age of seven. So he, did, he stopped loving me. But as I fell in love with God, my father, I began to see the mistakes that my dad had made and I could forgive my father. But I had to express before God the sadness I felt and the anger that my father had walked away from me, even though I pushed him. Only once I got in touch with that deep anger could I then go and forgive my dad and then I went on and fathered my father. And my mother says to me today, you, you fathered your dad. I said, I did. I know, God was calling me to do that. Because that's what God can do with us. He doesn't mind who he uses. He just wants to, to see redemption there, etc. What's my point in all this? Don't be fearful of your emotions. If you have to headbutt a tabernacle, try and make sure the security cameras are off, okay? <laughs> A group of us used to go out in the car to open countryside in the UK. We used to get out the car and, and, and basically we used to find our voices. And gentlemen particularly, some of you need to find your voices. You've lost your voices. With no voice, forgive the phrase, it's a bit crude, but you've got no balls. 
Because what men do is men speak into situations and make things happen. And they do, and they follow up with their words as well. And for many of us, we've lost our voices. But if we don't get in touch with some of the sadness and the fear and the anger that we felt, we can't forgive the situations around us and even ourselves for how we've made our own mistakes. We can't come into the freedom of knowing what it is to truly forgive others, to step into the freedom of who we are. A beautiful lady here, you know who you are. You, we were talking here about forgiveness. And you said to me, how did you forgive the men that raped you? And the bit I didn't tell you is this, is of course I first had to get in touch with my profound sadness and anger at what had happened to me. I remember one day having a lovely worship session, I was singing along and this anger came up within me and I thought, well, what am I going to do with this? I got really frightened of how I felt. And I left the room and it was in the basement of a church in, in London. And I crossed over to this other room was, um, opposite the hallway and I went in and it was like a kid's nursery Everything was plastic with round corners to it, you know. I thought, yes. And I got things, and I threw these things across. The, it was, you know, everything's, you know, imperishable, it's for kids. And I went, Wah! I screamed my head off and had a real anger session. And of course, one of the people who'd been in the worship came over and saw me, it just came and knelt down and just affirmed me in my expressions of anger. And about half an hour later, after he prayed with me and I'd come to the place of anger, 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 and beneath the anger was my sadness and my tears, and he held me as I wept. We both went into the room, you know, kind of joyful, because I got the joy of the Lord by this point. And they said, and somebody said, Dim, did you manage to get rid of that madman? I said, yes, we did. He said, oh, um, did you lock the doors after he left? I said, uh, well, kind of. Oh, no, go, go now and lock them. I said, the madman was me. <gasps> you? I said, yeah, it was me. I was the one making all that noise out of the room. And I say that to you, because you know what? We need permission. We need permission to get in touch with that anger. We need permission to get in touch and say, I am absolutely, forgive the word, but I, I'm scared. I'm scared, Lord. I'm really I'm scared. It's all right. Only when we can really bring our hearts before him can he deal with our hearts and they can be transformed and therefore he can love us as we are. But we will have picked up from original sin. We'll have picked up from ancestral sin. And we've definitely picked up from cultural sin around us. And that's affected how we see ourselves and the promises that God's made to us and how we will walk forward in the future. That was James Parker with Don't Be Fearful of Your Emotions. For more from the Immaculata Mission School, visit cradio.org.au.